Oh my god, what am I doing? Hello, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. I am super duper excited, even more than I usually am, to be chatting with uh, my guest today. Her name is Catherine Burbelsing. She is the headmistress at Michaela, which is a school. I'm actually not sure of the full age range in London, in the UK. I see her on Twitter a lot, and uh, we were introduced to each other through Zuby many months ago, and we've been trying to set up something since then. And uh, I'm really, really excited to have her uh, on the show. I actually have her book, but I have not read it yet, but I do have her book and she's gonna tell us a bit about it. And you guys could also have a look at it if you want, once you're done hearing uh, what she has to say. So, hi, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. And could you first introduce yourself to the, to the audience? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Birbel Singh, and I'm the headmistress of Michaela, as you said. Also, I uh, sort of set it up. Um, it's a free school, which is the same as what you all have, uh, and you call charter schools. But charter schools have been going for many, many years in the United States, whereas here they've only been going since 2010. So it was a real struggle. We opened up in 2014, and there was a big struggle to open up just because in the same way as charter schools can get some negative press in the United States, you know, times that by a hundred <laughs> in terms of what we had to face here, mainly because we've, you know, we, we're 25 years later down the road um, in terms of trying to make it happen. So yeah, I have been in teaching all my life. Um, I went into teaching um, because uh, I wanted to change the world and I wanted to make a difference to underprivileged kids. So I've always worked in the inner city, um, which, um, I find really rewarding and I love it. And we set up this school to open up in 2014 because uh, I suppose we thought we could do things differently. Okay. And so I don't know a lot except for what I've seen uh, mostly on uh, Twitter. I think I might have seen your uh, interview video of yours at some point. Um, could you talk about why it was so uh, difficult and how that process was for you to set up Michaela and um, what is the negative press uh, <laughs> around yeah. charter schools and especially so, yeah that's a good good schools. question so uh, charter schools or free schools in this country have more freedom than say normal public schools um, now I have to say charter schools have more freedom than free schools do here charter schools in America uh, you can apply to them and then there's a lottery and there, you guys actually have um, lottery balls, you know, that are in a big cage and they, they roll it round and there's a big room and all the parents and the kids are in there. And then they call out the number and somebody in the room goes, why? It's me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and it's very American. And I say it's very American because that would never happen in Britain, not in a million years. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. far too, you know, reserved. It just would never happen. Um, yeah. And here we have the normal admissions code that uh, everyone follows. So really we are just like any other normal state or what you call public schools. Charter schools are slightly different than that. But uh, the idea behind both types of schools is that the people who work in the charter or in the free school tend to be similarly minded and they buy into a particular type of vision for the school. There's much more ownership over the school because because it's their school. So in a normal school, you know, you go, you work in a school for three or four years, maybe, and then you go to another school and then you go to another school. And there's no sense that you are at your school when you work with a charter or a free school, especially if you helped found the school, it's very much your school. So I always think of myself a bit like an entrepreneur in that I've built something from the ground up uh, which didn't exist before. Now, yes, it's true, um, I, it has, it's not part of the free market, but I've had to take in money and then I've had to build something up and you know, pay staff, hire staff, make things work in the way that any business would really. So um, I think that can also be quite frightening for people uh, in the world of education because they're not used to um, the kind of ownership and control that people can have over their own institution. 
as happens with charters and with free schools. Thomas Sowell wrote a uh, really interesting, just recently, it came out a few months ago, uh, he wrote an interesting book called uh, Charter Schools and Their Enemies, which I would suggest all of your listeners uh, read. He wrote it at 90 years old, which is quite amazing. <laughs> and he is um, he's comparing uh, the effects of a Success Academy in New York, which is a charter chain, uh, in comparison to other public schools. Uh, he, he does a specific analysis of schools that are actually in the same building. So you've got a charter school on floors six and seven, and then you've got a normal public school on floors four and five, for instance. So because often what people say is the reason why there's a difference in terms of results from one school, from a charter school to a normal public school is because you've got different intakes of children. You've got different types of families and all this sort of thing. And, you know, who knows? Sometimes there may be truth to that. So the reason why he analyzes uh, these schools in the same building is because, well, they're in the same building. The other thing he does is he takes a look at the children who would have gone to the charter school had they been lucky in that lottery. So, you know, I said there's the big room and they're going around and then they go, wait, you know, we've won. Well, the kids who didn't win end up going to the public school. And so if, because they might say, yeah, but the kinds of families who end up going to, um, uh, the charter school tend to be families who are more committed to their kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he looks at those exact same kids who didn't get into the charter uh, in the public school in the same building as, say, Success Academy. And the difference in terms of um, grades on their uh, on their, the, the, the standardized scores that they get on the tests I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it, it's shocking. I mean, it, the, the, it really is. I mean, it's unbelievable. And if you read this book, you will be 100% convinced that there's something wrong with the public education system in America. Here, I'm not sure is it's as stark as that necessarily. So there are some free schools doing uh, an amazing job. Although I suspect it's probably the same in America. He's mainly looking at success academy. He's not necessarily looking at all uh, charter schools. So some free schools do an amazing job and other free schools uh, do a, a pretty normal job. So um, the question is, is a free school good? And I think it is because it gives you ownership. And one thing I think the private sector has over the public sector is that people own their stores, they own their little business, they, they want to make things work because it belongs to them. And I do think, sadly, there is a bit of an assumption on the part of the left sometimes that you don't need a sense of ownership in order for people to uh, look after something. And, um, you know, I always, it, it's really interesting, our staff room, and here's a perfect example of how, why ownership matters. Um, we used to have all these mugs in the staff room and the mugs would disappear. They would get broken. They would be left in the sink, un, you know, unwashed, a mess. You know, they'd get lost. I mean, it was a disaster. And so we then said, OK, you know what, everybody? You're going to bring in your own mugs and you're going to own your mug and you're going to look after it. And you know what? The whole place changed. <laughs> there are never any dirty mugs in the sink anymore. There are never everything works. You know, the, the bunks don't get broken. They don't get lost. It works. And that's because everybody owns their own mug <laughs> and then looks after it. It's just human nature, really. And I think too often uh, policies of the left uh, don't take into account what human nature is like and um, can then let our children down in our schools uh, because because they just don't get um, well, they just don't they don't take into account human nature. Yeah, um, that's a great example uh, to, to sort of illustrate um, what happens when you have a public good versus a private good and also the the classic tragedy of the commons um, case. And I wanted to say that I'm already convinced that there's something up with the public education system in America. But since you mentioned um, Sowell, so I'm a huge fan of um, Thomas Sowell and he is the person who made me a bit fascinated uh, in this topic of charter schools and their impact on particularly um, disadvantaged children or children who supposedly may have some other issues influencing their success in later life but then once they're put into certain um, situations uh, meaning these charter schools and I don't know about the success academy but I heard him 
talk about the the KIPP, K-I-P-P, I don't know how you say yes. it. Yeah, um, charter schools. So that's the that's like that was my introduction introduction um, to charter schools, and I am, as my audience would know, from the from Jamaica. So the school system in Jamaica isn't like that at all. But when I was reading, um, they're just public schools, but they're run often by um, private institutions. But you apply and then you get in. So they're I don't know how to explain. It. They're public, but then they get funded by like parents or alumni very often. But they're still public. So I don't know what it's like a mix between private and public. But that's not what I want to focus on. What I want to point out is. When I was reading about uh, charter schools in the U.S., um, particularly KIPP, well, they have multiple schools um, through Sowell, I noticed he was talking about the, the structure and the rigor. And I said, I thought to myself, this reminds me of uh, schools uh, in Jamaica. A lot of them are, most of them, if almost all of them are, were founded at one point by churches. That's everything except the universities. So primary and secondary school, and they're very strict. <laughs> um, but I think that, that that form of structure and discipline can really, really help, particularly if that structure and discipline is not there at home, which is often the case, I think, for a lot of students that people would call disadvantaged or are disadvantaged in this, in this particular way. So do you... I haven't read your book, but I do see that it says the power of culture. And so I was wondering if you could walk me through um, what specifically you think makes it so that students in these schools um, have good outcomes, even, even when they may not come from the best situations, even though the media maybe might not want to acknowledge that even when they say that this is something that they really, really care about. But then when you see very, very stark examples, such as the one you just gave with the Success Academy, um, that should be a pointer to say, hey, maybe we should be doing more of this if we care so much about these groups that we like to complain about uh, all the time. Yeah, it's a good point. Why don't they want to change, um, especially when you see the results of various schools doing things differently? I think ideology is very powerful. Uh, that's the conclusion I've come to, where um, it doesn't matter how much evidence you put in front of them. Uh, there's all sorts of evidence about how children's brains learn, uh, how it's best to do explicit teaching from the front of the classroom, uh, using direct instruction. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're telling them what they need to know, um, and then you're allowing them to do something with it afterwards. Um, that uh, is, it, it's been proved by science that that's how children learn best. Um, it, it doesn't seem to matter though, uh, the ideology that it's somehow in the child and we need to draw it out of them uh, can often trump uh, people's um, understanding of what ought to just be facts. There's that, but then there's just also, you talk about culture. If, um, so, and Jamaican schools actually, it's interesting because, um, I, uh, one of the things that changed my mind about the education system, so I used to be a real lefty and I used to believe uh, all the standard things that lefties think, which was that the reason why schools don't work is because of institutionalized racism. It's because there isn't enough money. Um, it's because of corrupt politicians and so on. I, the, the kind of standard stuff that, that lefties say, I, I thought. Um, and over years I changed my mind and part of the thing that helped me change my mind was traveling outside of uh, uh, my own environment of inner city London and going and seeing schools across the world from India to China. I spent a summer working in a South African school. Um, I also visited schools in New York, actually. And then um, I visited uh, schools in Jamaica because my mother's Jamaican. And um, you know, I went to one school uh, where these kids out in the countryside somewhere and I remember they didn't have, um, well, they were so excited to meet me first when I first arrived. And in fact, I remember them all standing and, and clapping, and uh, which was, it was a bit odd because they all just spontaneously <laughs> jumped up and started clapping. And I was, I was slightly taken aback. And then we realized the reason why they were clapping was they thought that I was their new English teacher. <laughs> the reason they thought I was their new English teacher was because they hadn't had an English teacher for months. And um, I then went to the class where they were having English and it was a girls' school. And girls would get up 
and just teach the class themselves. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I mean, they would just get up and they would read the class and so on. And I, I've never, it was amazing. So anyway, that was that was that one school, which they, those girls were much from a more privileged background and so on. I then went to uh, Kingston um, where uh, we were out with some friends the night before, my parents and I, and um, I was explaining that I was going to go and see this school and I got it arranged through my family because I said I wanted to go and see a relatively rough school because I'd been to this really nice school, but I wanted to see something quite different, um, something to what I'm more used to, the inner city in Kingston, inner city in London, you know. And when my parents' friends heard that I was going to visit this area in Kingston um, and visit the school, they tried, they begged them to stop me from going. I mean, they said, you know, she'll never, she won't come out alive and all of this. Well, do you I mean, remember which, which area? I can't, you know, so many years ago. So it's I can't okay. Just, yeah, yeah, that's okay. But, um, yeah. you know, I don't know. They were talking about the gangs that are there and how. Uh, what, what year, what time period was this? Like the so 70s, this was, 80s, 90s? I don't, like what? Oh, no, this is in 2006, maybe, something like oh, that. Really recent. Oh, okay. And hmm. so <laughs> I, um, I, and my father was saying, I'll be sure, you know, you shouldn't go. And I said, look, I'll take a taxi. I'll get out of the taxi. I'll go straight into the school. I'll come back out. I'll get into a taxi. I had to really reassure him. So I went and I remember the principal. She was so excited to see me because she, nobody ever went to visit her school, obviously. And she kept shaking my hand, shaking my hand. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for coming. And then I went around and I was looking at the school. And it was really interesting because here was this school which the stats were 80% of the children there had never met their fathers. So they didn't know their fathers at all. So the kids in the inner city here, most of them, some of them don't know their fathers, but most of them, I would say, at least know who their father is. Um, and it's true that there are loads of absent fathers and there are fathers who aren't necessarily absent, but really are not really around and, and so on. So that is a problem here. But these kids really had no dad at all. And it was the majority. It's not the majority of our kids here. And um, I went round and it was interesting because the feel of the school felt a bit like a London inner city school in that it was, uh, you could feel that it was lively. You know, it wasn't kind of perfectly behaved or anything. It was lively. And, you know, in the middle of lessons, I'd see maybe a kid come out of a classroom and go elsewhere and then another kid would come out and so on, you know. So it was a, it was a more standard London school, which is lively. And I say standard. There are lots of schools here that would be much worse than this, but you know, I would say a relatively good London school, let me say, would 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 be like this. And um, and then I was talking to the teachers and asking them what they thought and so on. They, every single one of them said to me, oh, it's so hard working here. These kids are so difficult. I never had to do anything so difficult in all my career. All the other schools I've worked at are so easy, but you don't know what it's like here. And then I was speaking to the head of special needs. Now, obviously, the special needs kids are the ones who need the most support and are often the most challenging in any school. So I was excited to talk to her because I said, okay, so, you know, tell me what it's really like. Is it really bad? And she said, oh, you just don't know. You just don't know. And um, and I said, okay, well, hit me then. Tell me, tell me, <laughs> you know, tell me what they do. Give me your worst. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? And she said, well, let me tell you. One day I asked this boy to sit down and he did not sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was the most hilarious thing. And the reason why I thought it was the most hilarious thing was because you got to remember, I'm coming to an environment where people, kids are telling you to F off, kids are throwing chairs. Kids, like that is what's going on in London's inner city, inner city. So I'm thinking, sorry, I'm in the most, you know, in a, in a, in a place where my parents' friends said I might get killed. They were talking about all the gangs. They're so worried. All these teachers are telling me I'm in the worst possible school in Kingston. And yet, the most shocking story they could tell me was that this kid just didn't sit down. So now, look, that might be an exaggeration. There may be situations, no doubt, that they have to deal with when it comes to uh, from outsiders and, you know, and the gangs and all of that. But I was just asking for the, the, the behavior of the kids towards the teachers. So I would say that what I saw in Jamaica, and I saw a few other schools as well, uh, what I would say is that there's a lot more respect for teachers, just generally, in society. And, in, and by the kids. And of course, the kids inherit that respect from their parents. Uh, I would say that in the Western world, in both the US and the UK, there's far less respect. And um, partly I think, and, 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 and that's not because we're not very good. Uh, the, the, the teaching that I saw going on in Jamaican schools were no, was nowhere near as good as the teaching that takes place in, in uh, 
in London or in, in New York, you know, it, nowhere near. You know, I'd see maths teachers teaching wrong maths, you know, like <laughs> they, 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 there's no comparison. Our teachers are much better here. So it's it, they're qualified. They're good. I would say that it's a sense of entitlement that children have here in this country and in the U.S. that children in Jamaica don't have. And in Jamaica, there's much more of a sense of gratitude and deference towards the teacher. I mean, I don't know if, if you would agree with this. You know, I, I do. I, I was going to say that um, like we stood when the teacher entered the classroom and you say good morning. Just like that simple um, example kind of lets you know like what that relationship was like. And from what I know of at least the U.S., that, that, that's not happening. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting you give that as an example because little rituals like that help to instill a culture in the school uh, which, um, which tells the children how to behave. Uh, so now it's interesting. We had at our school long conversations. Should we have them standing up for all the teachers? In the end, we decided not to. And the reason we decided not to is because we get so many guests. We get 600 guests a year. So there are people coming in and out of their lessons all of the time. Plus, not only guests, but the teachers are constantly going in and going to the back and observing each other and so on. So it, 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 we just didn't want the children to be like nodding dogs, jumping up, sitting down, jumping up. We didn't want the lessons to be disturbed. So that's why we decided against Oh, that. sorry. Just to interrupt just to clarify, that's only like when they first enter the classroom for the session. For the, not oh, like every single oh, time. Yeah. But uh, just, to, just okay. to clarify that, yeah. Okay, because there are schools here where they will make them get up every time a, an adult stand, gets and goes into the room. But then what tends to happen is, because the, the adult doesn't want to interrupt the teaching, is that they walk in and some of the kids stand and then the adult's going, no, 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 sit down, sit down. And so, you know, it, it, I find it too disruptive. So that's why we didn't do it. Having said that, every day when I do assembly, I, will, I walk into assembly and all of the children stand. So, and people no doubt would listen to that and go, oh, she just thinks she's so important. It really has nothing to do with how important I am. Like, I, as if I could care less whether or not children stand for me. <laughs> it's because I'm playing a role of being the headmistress. And I walk in and I say, morning, year nine, be seated. And it, it's, <laughs> it's a whole thing, you know, like, so, you know, I say things like, when we cross the road up at the top uh, of, the, of the road, there's a green man and a red man. And I always say to the teachers, make sure they never see you crossing at the red man. You know, always turn, trust the green man because we have a role to play, you know. So and that's the case for me. You know, sometimes I'm in the middle of, you know, in, in the middle of Oxford Street and um, I want to cross the road. And I, I kind of think, OK, I hope no kids are here. <laughs> Go for it. You know? and, and that's how I'm always thinking. And so it. it it's because we understand the relationship between ch the child and the adult and that we're not meant to be their friends. We're meant to be in a position of respect and in a position of authority. And I would say that too often nowadays, we've lost the understanding that adults are in the position of authority. And in, in Jamaica, they still have it uh, to a certain extent. I mean, obviously that's being eroded, I think, everywhere. Um, but we really have lost it too much in both the UK and the US. Now, what we've done here at Michaela is really try and reestablish that with all the kinds of rituals that we were just talking about, not just standing, but things like we get them to give appreciations at lunch and they stand up and they thank their mom or their dad or their teacher for doing X, Y, and Z for them. For them. And they say this out loud to a group of 200 children. It helps them with their skills of public speaking, but it also allows them to be grateful. We get them to write little postcards to us to say thank you very much for my lessons, etc. And, and that's so important because otherwise the sense of entitlement uh, takes over. And um, I think that this needs to be constantly narrated with children. Now, all of these kinds of values that I'm talking about, I would also talk about the fact that we push the idea of personal responsibility, people taking responsibility for who they are rather than kids saying, oh, well, you know, I couldn't do my homework because... Uh, my brother was, you know, using my desk or whatever it is, uh, it's, they are responsible and you're not making excuses for them. Too often, I would say in schools, people make excuses for children and they say, oh, well, you know, it's difficult for him. He comes from a difficult background or his father's really mean or his father's not there or whatever it is. That doesn't help anybody because many children, 20% in this country, I don't know what it is in America, but there will be a number of children who leave school every year functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate. And when I say leave school, I mean they leave education for good. And um, if you're functionally illiterate, 
life is really difficult. <laughs> You're spending your whole life pretending that you can read properly when you can't. And yeah. that's awful for anyone. And I just think it's our role as adults in the education system to make sure that this doesn't happen. Um, the worry that I have um, at the moment for US education actually is all of the stuff that's been happening around Black Lives Matter. Um, the stuff that they're kind of making schools do is not good for disadvantaged children. And I know that doesn't make any sense because you'd think that Black Lives Matter is all about the disadvantaged. It's meant to be, but the reality is very different from that. And um, it means a really good example of this is uh, KIPP. You mentioned the KIPP Charter School. Um, mm -hmm. Now, KIPP uh, used to have um, a motto which was work hard, be nice. And we at Michaela, we copied them and we've got a motto called work hard, be kind. <laughs> and we had to change it. We don't want to have the same one. So we called it work hard, be kind. But essentially mm -hmm. the idea is that if you can get every child in your school to do at least that, to be hardworking and to be kind in life, then fantastic. Obviously we want them to get to do a lot more than that, but at the very minimum, you want everybody to be able to do those two things. Because of Black Lives Matter, and they actually wrote to the two guys, the two Jewish guys who set up KIPP, and KIPP has now charter schools across America, and has had, had, has had such impact, good impact, on the lives of so many black children, I can't tell you, and also has inspired other schools, like, say, us, Michaela. They wrote a book about how they set up and everything, and it's called Work Hard, Be Nice. That's the name of their book. <laughs> they have now, as of this year, abandoned that motto, and they've got rid of the motto altogether. And um, they've done Wait, this. Sorry, sorry. Who, who abandoned it? The people who founded? Yeah. yeah. So the two Jewish okay. guys who right. set up KIPP, they not only have that motto throughout their entire, all the hundreds of KIPP schools that are across America, they also, their book, which is all about how they set up KIPP, and people like me read, because we are inspired by that sort of thing, is called, like, if I had a copy of it, I mean, I must do somewhere there on my shelf, um, it's like big letters, work hard, be nice. That's the whole cover of the book, right? Now, they've now abandoned the motto. And the reason they've done that is because of Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter have accused them of uh, making children nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, instead of fighting their oppression or whatever, something well, like that. Because the misunderstanding is that if you're nice, then you are compliant. And if you're nice and compliant, then you're going to put up with racism. You're going to put up with being oppressed. Whereas, in fact, as you say, we should be teaching children to be revolutionaries and to throw off the shackles. Now, I think that's insane because the fact is that I'm very nice to people, but I'm no shivering wallflower. <laughs> um, I'm very nice on Twitter and very polite to people, but I have turned the education system upside down. I'm a total revolutionary. Um, I question the status quo constantly. I push back con all the time. In fact, people will probably argue too much. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact is, you can do that and still be nice. But they've interpreted it this way. And that means that none of these children are actually going to be taught how to be nice people, which is awful. Right? And what yeah. is that going to help them? Not only are they not going to strive to be good people in their lives, but how are they going to be colleagues that you want to work with? How are they going to be people who don't shout in your face and who aren't rude and so on? Because they're never going to taught, be taught how to be nice because that's no longer the essence of the school. Um, and white teachers in particular then feel uncomfortable about encouraging those children to be nice because they're told that to do so is racist. So there's a very clear example of how anti-racism is undermining black children and making it so that they won't succeed in life. And that's not what they want to do. You know, I don't think people involved in Black Lives Matter want to, you know, undermine black kids, but that's what they're doing. I, I, I don't know. I've questioned that. And I think that maybe not at the conscious level, I think that people might want that. I, I, I think that there might be people with nefarious motives um, and not just not fully understanding the impact of um, uh, what they're doing. So you, you said so much right there. And I, I want to talk about the the Black Lives Matter thing a little bit. I, I can't stand Black Lives Matter. I haven't since uh, my first video on them was in 2017. I I personally think I see through all of their crap. And I, I mostly think that people should be treated as individuals. Like we can acknowledge that there are cultures and people want to support that. that I, that's okay. 
But especially when it comes to the institutional level, um, I don't think that there should be special anything given out to any group of people. Um, but I don't want to get into that yet. I wanted to ask about how specifically these values that you're, you're, you and Michaela are instilling in children, how does that translate into the success? Because you mentioned there's a personal responsibility and there's a, the kindness. And to me, it, it, you would think that for education, if you're seeing success at a rate that's not there, if say these children had gone to uh, public schools, you would think that it would be something about the actual content that you could point to, but you're talking about values. And I'm wondering, I have like my own theory that it's, it's not just the content um, that gets you through life because you need to be able to have certain values in order to absorb the content. So yeah. it's like, if you're, it's, it's almost as if you, if you don't have the, the like, the quote unquote, what they would call soft skills. And I like when I went to business schools that they would call certain things soft skills that allows you to believe in yourself, um, cooperate with, with others. And I think that those things literally translate into you then absorbing the content, which is what people might want to focus on first, but it can only happen with like with the other things available. So I guess my question to you is, could you like specifically trace, I just tried to a bit, how the values you're instilling translate to academic, say, uh, success? Yeah, well, we've had great academic success, you know, at GCSE, our kids at 16 here, they take some national exams. And, uh, you know, according to Progress 8, which is how they do it, we were the fifth school in the country. Um, and this is out of 3,000 schools, you know, we're, we're doing well. So, um, and we have a tough intake in the inner city, um, you know, typical inner city, children carry knives, there are gang issues, there are alcoholism issues and all sorts. So, you know, um, that, what we do is amazing with the kids that we've got. Um, and too often for kids like these, people say it's not possible. Well, we demonstrate that it is possible, but we're not the only school that does so. There are other schools that do amazing jobs with their kids. And I would say that they have very similar values to ours. Um, and those are what I call small C conservative values. Uh, belief in duty to others, in personal responsibility, where you are responsible for what you do and whether or not you get your homework done or whether you're on time, you're not blaming the bus. You're saying, you know what, I should have set that alarm for 10 minutes earlier and so on. Um, and then th there's all the stuff that I was talking about, about gratitude, not having a sense of entitlement, not complaining that the problem is out there, that the world is racist or the world is sexist. And I always say, you know what, the world may very well be racist and sexist. That's up for discussion. We can have a debate. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying it doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> the fact is that it could be the most racist world ever. All you've got is your lot in life. All you've got is what you've been given. And so all you can do is just get your hands dirty and make the most of the life you've got. That's all you can do. And the way you do that is by taking personal responsibility, working hard, being nice, <laughs> being good, trying to be a good person in life. That's the be nice bit, the be kind bit. You want to try and be a good person in life. And then the working hard bit, well, that's about taking responsibility and saying, well, look, I'm going to make something of my life. And yes, maybe life is hard, but I'm going to keep on going. You know, wonderful story, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about in America, Larry Elder, you, you're a mm -hmm. black conservative uh, radio host. Um, he uh, uh, tells this wonderful story many times about his father. And um, the kind of man that his father was and how he was kicked out about the age of 15 or something by his mom. And he didn't have anywhere to go. And he had to go off in really racist America, like seriously racist America then, and find various different jobs. And what he had to do all his life in order to keep surviving. And the man is so inspirational. I, I'll never tire hearing of that story. And Larry tells it often. And whenever he does, I always sit back in the podcast and just listen. Because <laughs> it's so great. And that was the man who faced far more difficulty uh, than we do now in, in terms of race, which isn't to say that racism isn't still a problem. I'm not arguing that it isn't. Um, the question is how, let's keep this in proportion <laughs> and, and let's think, you know, is it worse uh, being um, a, a black man trying to find it really that difficult? Or would it be worse being a white man who's illiterate? You know, if you're illiterate, 
then whether you're white or black, <laughs> life is really hard. So let's do that. Why don't we make that our focus in schools? Making sure every child can read. Every child should be able to count and do a bit of algebra, you know? Like, that should be our focus because those are the things that hold children back in the main. That doesn't mean that there isn't racism, but that is a far bigger problem. Them not being culturally literate, them not knowing Shakespeare, them not knowing their history or their country and so on. That sort of stuff is important and I would say more important. And once you have a basis uh, for all of this cultural literacy so they can understand the world around them, then of course they can have more interesting debates around racism and sexism and all that stuff that's out there. But in the first instance, they need to think about what's in here. Often on Twitter, I'm asked, you know, well, what is it that you do? If you're not an anti-racist, then what are you? As if to say, if you're not an anti-racist, then you're a racist. Uh, well, no. You should strive to be a good person. That's what you should strive to be. Because if you're an anti-racist, frankly, you're just a bit obsessed with all the wrong things. I mean, and then you end up doing what BLM does, which is making things worse for black people. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and you don't want to do that. What you want to do is be a good person. That's what I'm always saying to people. And so in your daily life, you know, are you a good mom or dad? Are you a good brother and sister? Are you a, are you a good daughter or son? Are you somebody who um, gives more than you take? You know, uh, are you grateful for what you've got, however little that may be? Do you realize that you're better off than other people? Because there's always somebody out there who's worse off than you are. You know, these are things that make for a happier life. And they're the kinds of values that we try and instill in our children because it means they're happy. And you know what? Our children, our children are happy. Our, our school is filled with those joyful children. People like to pretend that they're unhappy because it, it fulfills the image that they have in their heads of this ideology. You know, this miserable Catherine saying who likes to go around <laughs> giving detentions and making children be silent in the corridors. <laughs> Like I can see a tiny bit of I can see a tiny bit of that, but it's probably for good. Well, you say that. The thing is, is that most of the time I'm here supporting staff. So what I mean by that is half the time I'm not out of my office, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not with the kids most of the time. The kids are with their teachers. And what I do is I enable a school to run with strict systems that are consistently applied by all of the teachers. And then that means that all of the teachers are supported. And then in turn, all of the children are supported. So it really isn't kind of anything to do with me. I'm running, you know, I talked about a business. You know, I, I have systems so that my business runs and it runs efficiently. Um, and I think too often, uh, I suppose people in education don't necessarily think in that way and that they'll listen to me and think I sound mean or lacking in emotion or something. But I love those children as much as they do. And in fact, because I love those children, that I believe in all of these things. You know, today, for instance, I spent a long time with one of them who's been very awkward about coming into school because he feels he doesn't have any friends. And I had a chat with him for at least half an hour, just him and me. And I was saying, well, you know, when I was at school, it was hard for me because I know what it's like to feel like you don't necessarily have friends. And we have this lovely heart to heart, you know. And um, and then you know, he went back into his lesson. He said, oh, thank you, miss. And he was so, it was lovely. It was just lovely. I love these kids, you know. Um, that's why I keep my standards high and insist on what I do. Because I want what our kids have here, I want all kids to have. And it really is possible if people just change their minds about what works in the classroom and what works, what works in schools. Okay. Um, so I want to wrap up. And I'm just telling you this so that you can try to answer briefly. So there are two other things I want to touch on. And one is to get a bit more into Black Lives Matter. Uh, I, I do want to say that it's interesting how not everybody's saying the word anti-racism and anti-racist when that, that didn't even exist, like, I don't know, five, five years ago or something. And I see that as sort of co-opting the population and they're trying to co-opt the kids, as in that example you just gave with the, the founders, the, the Jewish founders. Um, changing their whole uh, approach, I guess, to helping people. Everyone is being co-opted into these people's uh, ideologies, which I, I obviously don't like. So there's that. And then I want to uh, get into briefly um, how things started, because I know there was some struggle and I want to talk about that a bit. But first, 
Uh, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Not just Black Lives Matter, but I guess the lefty ideology and um, I guess the, the, the thing with the, the founders changing their motto and just talk a bit more, more about that. Well, I mean, as I said, they changed their motto because uh, Black Lives Matter don't like it. Black Lives Matter have also uh, tried to influence curriculum um, and so they want uh, various white authors taken off the curriculum and black authors being put on. There needs to be a black focus instead of a white focus. And um, while I don't believe in the whitewashing of any curriculum, and I have to say maybe 70, 80 years ago, that is what happened. So when it came to British history, for instance, the role that black people perhaps played in that history was just not mentioned. For instance, there were hundreds of thousands of um, uh, black Caribbean uh, soldiers that gave their lives in the in the world wars uh, to fight for Britain. Same thing with the million Indian soldiers who came from India, and they were never mentioned. Nowadays, they are mentioned. So, you know, th there has been a fight over the years in order to make sure that things aren't whitewashed. But we've now gone too far in this, where they, you see, there's only so much time in the curriculum to teach. And so people always say, well, no, we don't want to take white stuff out. We just want to put black stuff in. Well, <laughs> you, you can't. you got to choose. So you got to choose. The thing is that I always say, look, I'm a black author. Um, you know, I've written lots of stuff. Well, OK, great. Should we teach Catherine Mirabel Singh instead of Shakespeare? I don't think so. And the reason is because dead white men are important, not because they're white and not because they're men, but because they're dead. That is why they matter. And people get so wound up by the white male thing that they forget that they're dead. Shakespeare has been dead for 400 years. Shakespeare has been influencing literature for 400 years. So when Maya Angelou uh, writes, she writes off the back of Shakespeare. <laughs> so it's mad to think, oh, well, let's abandon uh, some of those dead white men in order to have more modern black authors. Now, I'm not against reading those modern black authors. Um, I, we have loads of modern black authors in our library and we're encouraging the children all the time to read them. Whether or not they should be the one text that, that they study, because that's the other thing that you got to remember. Children will spend an entire term or more, six months, studying one text. <laughs> so it's not like they can then have five or six. You got to choose one. So what's it going to be? Um, <laughs> you know, there's Animal Farm, for instance. Well, that's George Orwell. So do we study that or do we choose something that's more modern and black? Um, now, Animal Farm gives you a whole understanding of, of communism, of there's, there's, there's a whole understanding of historical understanding of the world, which I think children need. Um, now, you might say more modern stuff is also needed. I don't know if that's the role of schools. I think more modern stuff should be discussed in the debating chamber. Uh, so in debate club, we do that sort of stuff. But in terms of what we're teaching them in English or at his, in history, I think it needs to be more historical. And that's the role of secondary school. I think that when you get to university, absolutely, you can have a whole variety of different types of literature that you would study. And that's, that, that's good. I, I, I fully support that. I just think at secondary school, um, it's our role to give them the basics and that cultural literacy is so important. Why is Shakespeare important? Because otherwise you don't know when they say, well, he's a bit of a Scrooge or a rose would smell as sweet. These are expressions that come up all the time and they come from Shakespeare. <laughs> so um, I, I, I just think it's important for all of our children to have that cultural literacy. And if I black children that cultural literacy, then they are not going to be able to compete with their white counterparts who have ma who have managed to access that cultural literacy in their schools. Yeah, I wanted to sort of respond to that. So the funny thing that uh, my perspective on people trying to push, say, quote unquote, black literature, first of all, as someone who is from um, Jamaica and who comes to the US and hear people talk about black, 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 black all the time, but it's all American stuff. I think that it's, first of all, what are you calling black and whose voice is that represented? Because it's probably only representing some specific part. And obviously I'm gonna have a perspective on that as an outsider, um, that, that someone who is black in the US, grew up in the US, isn't gonna have, because they're, they're just, you're not just not gonna see that, which is fine, there's no fall on that person, but I'm gonna have that, that like, I already think that you're picking and choosing and you're, you're, you are going to have a, a cultural dominance 
that you're you're like trying to take down some other quote unquote cultural dominance. I don't think that's actually true, but that's what they think. But you're establishing that as well when you define what black means from like your historical perspective, which might be different from another place's uh, historical uh, perspective. And then the other thing was when you're trying to remove uh, dead white men, as you put it, it's funny that to me, it is a form of racism on the part of these people trying to um, remove these dead white men because they're only focusing on the, the white men part and you're like stripping all the other important stuff away, which is you're calling the, the cultural relevancy for anybody um, speaking English, for example, with a, with a Shakespeare example. So I just wanted to, uh, to comment on that. And I also wanted to ask if, did you think that there were, do you have any more examples like that of like what they're trying to do with the uh, curriculum or? Well, the yeah. main thing is the curriculum. Um, I'm just curious uh, about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay if you don't have thing, anything. Oh, and then there's kind of exclusions that they'll go for. So they'll say um, they want to stop uh, black boys from being excluded, for instance. But this is bef even before Black Lives Matter. There's a real campaign to say that if you exclude black boys, therefore you're being racist. Exclude and the problem with that... What? Exclude them from... Well, you might exclude them permanently. So when I say exclude, like um, suspend or you expel a child from a school, oh. right? Right, right, right. And... You might suspend them for two days or three days or whatever it is. Now, the problem is, is that if you call a teacher racist for suspending uh, or putting in detention a black boy, she'll stop putting him in detention. She'll stop suspending him. She'll stop doing X, Y, and Z because she doesn't want to be a racist. And what that means is, is that black children's behavior can then spin out of control. Um, and then we look at them and they think, why can't they behave? Well, because they're not being held to the same high standards as the white children. Because the white mm -hmm. children don't have that card to be able to play and say, well, you're only disciplining me because I'm black. Right. And that is a narrative that is uh, given a huge voice by BLM. And again, does not help black children. Now, because what they see is they see that one black child and they say, look, we're saving him. Well, no, what you're doing is making sure that all the other black boys look to him and think, oh, well, I can just copy you and it'll be all right. I could be a bad man too. And nobody's going to discipline me because well, we can get away with it because we're black. Did you, did you see? Yeah, that's a funny contradiction because you were just saying that they don't want uh, black children to be told to be nice because they need to shake off their shackles, but they're, they're playing the, trying to play the role of being too nice. You know, like when something is too sweet, it's actually bad for you. And like what they're doing, like you're talking about this, saving this individual person, but that's not saving someone. If someone is, is, behaving out of order as they're saying jamaica yeah. then um they need to be reminded of that like that's important for their own growth and progress so i just think that's that's very contradictory to be saying that they don't want people to be nice but then they're like cloaking or they're they're using kindness in a way that is actually detrimental to the person that they they claim to want to be helping uh, but i, I want to wrap things up and i just wanted to ask you to to talk about more of the founding i read this somewhere probably on twitter um or maybe it was even i opened the book because i did i think i like started reading something um like how the name michaela came about and then yes. briefly um like what your struggles were concretely in like getting things set up? Yeah, well, I mean, we had huge struggles. We named it Michaela because uh, Michaela was an old colleague of mine and she was from St. Lucia and she was just old fashioned. She had traditional values and she expected children to show her respect and she was the adult in authority and she would get all this school inside out if she were here now. And sadly, she died of cancer in 2011. And um we had loads of trouble, it took us three years to find a building. We had loads of detractors. We would, I would go out in the rain and the snow handing out flyers, trying to set this place up. Uh, we would hold parent evenings, loads of black mums sat there listening to me. Uh, meanwhile, all these white people have infiltrated and are then standing up in the middle of the meeting, shouting at me uh, in order to disrupt so that these black mums cannot hear about the school. Uh, it, it, it really, I wish I'd filmed it all so that I could have evidence of this forever, you know, honestly. And the thing is that they were bussed in. 
So this is in the middle of the inner city in London, all these black people sitting in a room trying to find out about a new offer of school. And all these white people had been bussed in from the counties outside, from the rich wherever that they live, to come and protest to stop us from giving this option to the black inner city families. I, I, I really, and they think they're doing this uh, and, and being supportive. That's what they think they're helping black people by doing this. I will, I, I will never understand. <laughs> I will never understand. And so that happened for years. We had people breaking in on into the site, on the, the school site, um, taking photographs and all sorts and handing uh, material to our kids and telling them that, that, that it was a health and safety hazard here and that their lives were in danger. I mean, wow. honestly, I've had death threats. I've had threats of violence. I've had emails. One of my office staff actually had a breakdown. She had to leave because she couldn't take it anymore because there was so much negativity coming to us at the school. I mean, nowadays they leave us alone. And the reason they leave us alone is because we've got great results. We, the, the, the inspectorate that's called Ofsted came to us three years in and gave us an outstanding, which is the highest score. So it's very hard now to argue that what we're doing is bad when we clearly we have 800 families who want their children to go here. We've got really great results. We're doing brilliant things. We've got 600 guests here every year going around telling people how they love the school. So people have stopped. But in the early days, it was hard. And I would, I would literally check around my shoulder as I was walking up, uh, up towards the tube because I, I didn't know what might happen to me, you know? That, that is insane. <laughs> that, that is insane. It and, is. It um, is insane, yeah. I used to say, you'd think we were building nuclear arms when all we're trying to do is set up a school. You know, I, I mean, honestly... It, 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 madness, absolute madness. I, I just, uh, and the thing is, these ideology blinds, they, they are convinced that they are doing the right thing. Right. I mean, I think that you, you were saying you don't understand it. And I mentioned, I do think some people just, they like get swayed by the, the nice language and don't look deeper. But I also think that there might be on some other level, some nefarious stuff there and then i also think that there's some some vanity involved in like i'm doing the right thing to the yes. point where i don't actually care what the people who i i say i'm trying yeah. to help actually need or want yes. so like yeah, you're, you're yeah. blinded by your own sense of like oh i'm doing this good thing it's vanity that's, that's what right. that's what i think it is yes i i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah it's true um, and I just want to mention for the audience that St. Lucia is in, is like an island in the Caribbean because I, I feel like some people might not know that. Right, sure. Okay, um, I don't, let, me, let me just check to see if there's anything. I, I think you, you really went into um, a lot of detail. Um, thank you so much for yes. your time. Uh, sure. I think that you are inspirational. I'm oh, glad you. to have had you um, on the channel and uh, I will read your book. I will get yes, to it. Do. I have a lot to read. Um, again, thank you. And I hope that you, the audience, uh, enjoyed this. I do want to remind you to please support Just Thinking Out Loud so you can hear more conversations like this at justthinkingoutloud.tv slash support. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. And um, you can say bye, uh, bye to everyone listening. Yeah. And watching. Well, thanks. And tell, you, tell your audience they can follow me on Twitter and miss underscore snuffy s-n-u-f-f-y <laughs> yes i highly recommend that you guys do that i follow her as well have a good day everybody goodbye Bye. so um Oh, I'm sorry. These are our pips going off. Um, it's okay. <laughs> as I said, the, uh, you know, changeover of lessons. Uh, well, actually, it's the end of the day here. You guys are, are, are behind. Anyway, um, although, and what's interesting is that it's the end of the day, but you won't hear screams and shouts and so on here because the children will all leave school in a very orderly manner. And uh, it'll just, it'll sound the way I think a, a school should sound. Anyway, what was I saying?